Are you a high-performing real estate investor who's looking to further elevate your performance? If so, download our free guide, Raising the Bar, Five Steps to Elevate Your Habits by joining our insider network at elevatepod.com. This guide created by yours truly has the power to put your transformation on autopilot and exponentially change your trajectory. Go get your free copy now at elevatepod.com. Welcome to Elevate, the masterclass where we dissect the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth and real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chesser. I'm so thankful to have you here. And I'm blessed and grateful to be joined with wise people on Elevate Podcast. Today, we're going to be sharing with you a collection of wisdom from some of the wisest people that we've had on Elevate Podcast. And today we're going to be talking about optimization of health and wellness, because if you want to be a high performer, you've got to recognize number one, health is wealth. Number two, health impacts your wealth. Number three, uh, if you want to be a high performer, it does come down to how are you optimizing not only your mindset, but also the way that you feel your affect impacts your emotions, which then impacts your actions. But longevity is important, right? If you want to do big things, you want to make a big impact. It comes down to your longevity. How long are you going to be here uh, on this beautiful blue planet? We want to maximize and optimize and create new opportunities as a result, because man, uh, it's like what Michael Jackson said, if you want to change the world, look at the man in the mirror. And it comes down to first starting and understanding your health, optimizing this, optimizing your fitness, but optimizing uh, your longevity as well. And so I've got an awesome collection of words from the wise today that I enjoy. Uh, I enjoy to be a part of those conversations, but I also want to invite you to take notes and enjoy this conversation because this can be a game changer for you. So without further ado, please enjoy this health optimization edition of Elevate Podcast. I'm going to be sharing with you the names of the guests, uh, episode numbers, and titles of these episodes. So if you want to dive deeper in any of these uh, collections, then please just go back and listen to those particular episodes and dive deeper uh, because there's so much to be said about this. But as we collect this wisdom together for you and put it in a package formula that we have today. I think that you can gain a ton of value when you stack these on top of each other. But if you want to go deeper, just know that I'm giving you that tool as well here. So please enjoy this episode. Episode 165, Marta Zaraska, Transcending the Traditional, How to Optimize Your Health and Longevity. One of the things that really resonates with me, you're talking about donating, how that can be good for your health and, and really just giving to others in general. And I find that you know some of the most successful business owners or real estate investors are those who are the most generous and they mm-hmm. open up you know an opportunity to give to the less fortunate or, uh, or what have you. And I just think that your, what your work does is it provides additional clues to say, this is the path. Now let's, let's make these type of decisions. So let's talk about optimism because it almost seems that friendships and kindness almost leads into maybe an optimistic mindset. But could you talk a little bit about how that really relates to everything we're talking about here now? I mean, certainly optimism is another big thing when it comes to health and longevity, because, you know, when you think about it, uh, being optimistic can add you about 10 years of life. So that's that's quite significant. So it's definitely worth it. And it's again, it's something that can be learned. So there is definitely there is certainly some genetic components to how optimistic or pessimistic people are, but it's 
but it's uh, not completely out of your hands, right? So you can also improve on your optimism quite significantly. Uh, it's a little bit, you know, like with muscles when not everybody's born to be, you know, Usain Bolt. Uh, we not, don't all have the same amazing physique to be really great at sports, and but yet, you know, people like me who are obviously not Usain Bolt still try, right? I still try to run faster and longer and better and uh, and to improve, right? Even though my genetic makeup may not be the best uh, in, that, in that regard, but I still try. And it's the same with optimism or conscientiousness or neuroticism, things that are partially um, heritable, but you can also improve them by, by just trying, even though maybe you, you know, even if nature didn't give you the best uh, starting point, you can still improve. So even if we were kind of more inclined to be pessimistic because you were born that way, uh, you can still become optimistic by by trying. And there are so many books out there, you know, how to become optimistic. So I will not try to, uh, to go too deep into it because there's plenty of resources on how to change your thought patterns and, uh, and become more optimistic. I almost feel like it's rewiring your brain. You know, I've been having this conversation. I've had this conversation with, you know, various coaching clients over the years. And one of the things, you know, I, I think that we can look at pessimism at times and say, well, thank you. You know, thank you for trying to protect me, but I don't necessarily need you. And so how can I develop a habit of optimism and, and be more grateful for the things I have so that I can open myself up for, you know, more of an opportunity to receive more, maybe a gratitude practice would be a suggestion, but is there anything else that, and I know you mentioned you didn't want to go into it because there's so many other resources out there, but is there anything that you would point to that's been powerful for you for developing more of an optimistic attitude? I mean, generally for all those things, it's the uh, CBT, so, you know, the cognitive behavioral therapy, right? So the, the kind of recognizing negative thought patterns, trying to catch yourself when you, whenever you spot one and then trying to rephrase it, right? So for example, I, as I've mentioned before, I tend to worry, uh, you know, uh, too much for my own good, but uh, uh, so I am trying to rephrase it. So whenever I, for example, catch myself, you know, I don't know, my daughter will be coughing and I, my thoughts will be, oh my God, she has pneumonia or whatever, right? <laughs> so so then you have to stop yourself. You have to think, okay, how likely is it, right? That it's really pneumonia. What's more likely, what is the more likely scenario? What is more likely to happen? Uh, and so you have to kind of try to think, you know, much more, rationally and basically to rewrite your thought patterns and think, okay, maybe I'm catastrophizing here too much, you know, thinking more much too in black and white. Most likely it's going to be nothing again because it happened before so many times. So, so you basically have to, you know, spot negative thought patterns and then rewrite them. It almost goes back to mindfulness. You know, for me, it's always the awareness of, oh, well, that was a negative thought process. And do I really need that? Do I need to identify with that? Is that serving me or is that limiting me? And what you just described is that optimism can be learned and that it can give us 10 more years on our life. And, and for me, like that's what really can serve us. So how can we rewire our brain or, or you know, have some awareness to label that and then make a change? Because if we can learn this, if we can change our personality, how much power and how much, you know, excitement does that really give you? So thank you for sharing that. One of the things that I've found to be also very enlightening about your work is you've talked about purpose. And I know that most of our listeners here today have either got a very clear vision and purpose for their life or they're developing that or they're evolving that. And of course, it's always a work in progress. But could you talk about why purpose is so important towards longevity and health as well? Yeah, so the importance for of purpose for health and longevity really became to me uh, clear when uh, I was traveling in Japan to for research on growing young, and 
I was talking to uh, to scientists studying longevity and aging in Japan, and uh, and what struck me was the difference in what they were talking about. So between them and Western researchers. So generally, when I talked with uh, aging uh, researchers in the West, usually they were they talked about you know diet, exercise, the usual suspects. But in Japan, the conversation very very quickly went to something they call ikigai. And uh, ikigai roughly translates to purpose and meaning in life. And uh, it's so recognized as a health indicator in Japan that even the Ministry of Health officially uh, treats ikigai as you know as one of the most important things for healthy and uh, long life. And also when I talk to like you know the really elderly people in Japan, so the you know 80, 90 year olds and even 100 year olds there, uh, they they kept talking about this ikigai. Is that you know how important it is and what is their ikigai. So so then I also checked uh, research, of course, being the science journalist. So there is both Japanese and Western research showing that purpose in life indeed matters a lot for our health and longevity, you know, whether you frame it as this ikigai or our Western concept of meaning and purpose, uh, especially when it comes to cardiovascular disease. So protecting us from heart attacks and all the kind of cardiovascular issues. Um, and uh, and the thing is about uh, purpose in life and ikigai is that it doesn't really have to be anything grand. Of course, it can be, right? It can be saving the Amazon forest, right? Of course, great, good for you. But it doesn't have to be either. So it can be something very small. So the centenarians in Japan, they were talking about things like taking care of their grandchildren, for example, or, uh, or helping out their neighbors. Uh, really, really daily small things, but uh, also things in which they were helping others and contributing to community, basically. Um, so so if you find something like this, in which as the way, either big or small, in which you feel that your life contributes to, to, to the community, to the life of others, uh, this is exactly the purpose and meaning uh, that we are talking to about. And this can really boost um, your health, especially cardiovascular health. Episode 172, Emily Fletcher, how to change your reality and get better at life with mindfulness, meditation, and manifestation. So there was an amazing woman named Dion Zanotto. She was sitting next to me in the dressing room and she was understudying five of the lead roles. I was understudying three of the lead roles. We were doing a chorus line. And that means you have no idea which character you're gonna play when you show up to at the theater. So it's very high in demand. Even if you're not on, you're still in fight or flight because your body knows it could be thrown on at a moment's notice. You never really feel safe. You never really feel like you can let your guard down. And it was that high level intensity and stress that led to my insomnia and my gray and my getting sick and injured. And so here I am like on Broadway living my dream and I'm miserable. And I know so many people can relate to that. They think, well, okay, well, once I make a million dollars, then I'll be happy. Once right. I get the girlfriend, then I'll be happy. Once I get the boat, the house, then I will be happy. But that's an illusion. That's the all be happy when syndrome. And so think, so Dion has a harder job than I do and she's nailing it. Every song, every dance, every bite of food this woman eats is a celebration. She's like, oh, this is sensational. And she was Australian. And I was like, oh, well, she's just happy because she's an Aussie. Cause like, have you ever met an angry Aussie? No, um, like they're all so happy. Like what are they putting in the water over there? But then I realized that this was extra. And so finally I was like, hey, I'm gonna need to have some of what you're having. So she introduced me to her teacher who was in town from London. I went along, took this four day course. It was like two hours a day for four days. And at the end he was like, yeah, you'll be able to do this on your own. And I was like, what? In four days and two hours a day for four days, I'm gonna have a practice to take with me for life. And the answer was yes, that was 12 years ago. I've meditated every day, twice a day. 
you know, pretty much except for like a month after I had my baby, like I've meditated this whole time. And, and, and that to me, that self-sufficiency piece is really underrated. Like so many people are relying on apps to meditate for them or guided studios or guided YouTube videos to meditate for them. And I'm a big fan of self-sufficiency. So anyway, it was my friend Dion Zanotto, who was a fellow showgirl and a chorus line that introduced me to it originally. No, oh, I love that. I love that. And it's, you see that in someone else and you're like, wait a minute, I want what they're having, right? You see the happiness. And is, was that what it was? You actually noticed after a while, I was like, look, I'm not going to be happy if I just accomplish something else or get something else. Maybe that can come from within and maybe that's a choice. And maybe you almost subconsciously recognize that within your friend. Well, I, when I was 22, I got my first Broadway show and I had been very, very deep in the I'll be happy when syndrome. I mean, since mm. I was in fourth grade, I thought, well, once I get on Broadway, then I will be happy. Mm. And I was really lucky in that I had such a clear and specific goal, such a clear dream. And, and I was also very lucky in that I achieved it at a relatively young age in that. And what was lucky about that is not that I made it on Broadway. What was lucky is that it dissolved the illusion of the I'll be happy when syndrome, because three weeks after my Broadway debut was the saddest I had ever been. Mm. And so I learned at a very young age that I was more interested in the happiness of pursuit than I was the pursuit of happiness uh, because it felt like my goal had been taken away. So I was really happiest when I was working towards my goal, but I didn't really get that consciously at 22. So I just thought next boyfriend, next agent, next show, next zero in the bank account. And I did that for 10 years and I sort of prided myself on being a seeker. You know, I had read every self-help book. I had taken every class. I'd worked with every therapist. I'd done every modality. And I was proud of that. I'd proud, I was proud of how much software I had accumulated. And then it wasn't really until I found this style of meditation that I was like, oh, I'm not a seeker anymore. I found it. It's right inside of me. Mm. I just needed the key to unlock my fulfillment in the only place that it resides, which is inside of me right now. And it wasn't until I found this practice that I really had a visceral understanding of that. I love the way that you described it as a soft, as all the software, right? You had all the necessary pieces of equipment and you had uploaded that to your system through self-help, but then you didn't have maybe the right operating system underneath all of that is maybe the way that I would draw the delineation. What would you say? Well, I would say that, so I would define software as the operating system. Ah. So like Mac OS Snow Leopard or like whatever, <laughs> like your apps are on your phone. And the thing is like, you've probably tried to download a new version of an app and like, this isn't compatible with your phone. Are you trying to op download the new Mac operating system? It's like, you can't do this on your computer. And that's the way I delineate it, that self-help books, religion, talks, these are operating systems. But what meditation does and specifically what Ziva does is that it's defragging your brain computer. It's actually mm -hmm up leveling the hard drive, right? So you are rewiring, you're increasing neuroplasticity, which is the brain's ability to change itself. You are strengthening the corpus callosum, which is the bridge between the right and left hemispheres of the brain. You're increasing neurogenesis, which is the brain's ability to generate new neurons. And all of that is imperative if you're trying to run very advanced software. So like manifesting is a great example. You know, so many self-help folks are saying, you know, just hold your vision, get clear on your vision, know where you're going. And that's great, but you can manifest all day long. And if you're not meditating and your body is riddled with stress, then guess what? <laughs> it's gonna be very hard for that manifestation to arrive because likely you don't believe that you deserve your dream. If your body is riddled with stress and marinating in fight or flight stress chemistry, then it's very challenging to believe that you deserve your dreams. And we don't get what we want in life. 
We get what we believe we deserve. And if you're getting your buns to the chair every day, twice a day and doing meditation, you are increasing your deserving power because one, you're investing your most valuable resource, which is your time. And two, you're actually changing your neuro and biochemistry. You're changing your brain chemistry and your body chemistry from one of stress to one of bliss. And, you know, we could go down that rabbit hole in a minute if you want, but, but really manifesting is about feeling good. It's not just about clarity of vision. It's about how are you vibrating and are you vibrating at a frequency that will allow your dreams to come in when you reach the opportunities. Episode 83, Dave Asprey, Superhuman Performance. So I would tell you, pick up a breathing practice. And there are many of them. You can try you know, the Wim Hof breathing, which is going to make you trip balls. And you, know, you can go get, take a cold shower. I've been promoting those for almost 10 years now. It's a good thing to be uncomfortable for brief periods of time. But breathing is interesting because most of the time, until you've had some training of your nervous system, if you just breathe out all the way out, uh, and just hold your breath empty. <laughs> Most people get a panic sensation pretty darn quickly. But look, it's your body lying. You're not going to run out of oxygen if you don't bring air in for the next 30 seconds or even one minute, right? Why is it harder to hold your lungs empty than full? You have plenty of oxygen. You can measure it in your blood. Well, some system in you is lying because it's afraid you're going to die. Hmm. You want to become friends with the systems that tell you you're going to die because they're all lying, right? Another thing, and you're saying, Dave, this sounds like BS. Everyone listening has leaned on a hot stove sometime, right? You lean on a hot stove and then you accidentally do this, I'm assuming. And then you pull your hand away before you really get burned. You go, oh, thank goodness I pulled my hand away. Mm -hmm. Except you didn't pull your hand away. What happened is something in there decided it was too hot and moved your hand for you. And then you took credit for it. You lying bastard. <laughs> so, but think about it, right? You didn't go, oh, I smell bacon. That's really hot. I guess I should move my hand. It was instant and automatic, right? So what you want to do there is uh, definitely breathing exercises. And if you know the things that push your buttons, you can do things to train your nervous system. And one of them is heart rate variability training or HRV training. And I started doing this in my early thirties and it was really powerful. It turns out there's a change in the spacing of your heartbeats. It's not your heart rate, but it's just how much space there is between each beat and the space needs to be highly variable. If it's beating a certain way, you are in fight or flight response, that first F, for whatever reason, it doesn't matter. And if it beats a different way, you are in parasympathetic rest and recover mode. You're probably not going to know the difference between the feelings. Well, with a little clip on your ear or a thing on your finger, looking at a screen and breathing in and out, you realize within a week or so of doing this for 20 minutes a day, oh, you mean I can actually tell when I'm in fight or flight? Oh, and I can do this one thing. I can't tell you with words how to do it. It's what they've been trying to teach for many, many, many generations. But that one thing you do with your heart that, that actually changes the spacing of the beat takes you out of fight or flight and puts you back into control mode where hmm. you rest and reset. So 20 minutes a day, two weeks. Here's an example. I, uh, I had a client who ran a multi-billion dollar hedge fund uh, coaching client and he... He did what he got one of these things, wouldn't use it, use it on an airplane. And then he calls me and he says, Dave, I, I got to turn green. I felt really good. That was amazing. So now I'm just going to do it every day. Six weeks later, he's a master. He can turn himself off, off and on like that and really improved his life. But then he decides he's going to put it on his ear and sit down at the office. And the market bell rings to open the bell, it goes red. Mm. And it stays red the entire day. 
And he's like, wait a minute. You mean I've been trading for 20 years out of fear and fight or flight? Well, so he taught himself to trade when he wasn't in that. He mm. consciously turned off the fear mind. And his trades got better. But he's like, I get home at the end of the day, I have plenty of energy. I can play with my kids and stuff. Now I'm not exhausted. So this is the kind of stuff that you can do. So I'm talking about breathing, heart rate variability training. And then if you know that you had a rough childhood, um, if you were bullied, so many entrepreneurs were bullied and they're entrepreneurs because they're still trying to prove how good they are to the people mm. who are mean to them in seventh grade. Um, I would highly recommend um, come and do 40 years of Zen and like we'll, we'll erase all of the emotion associated with that. Like we'll teach you how. Or you can do something called EMDR. This is available in almost every city. It's a type of therapy. And literally you sit down with someone and they put your brain in a reset mode that involves moving your eyes back and forth, unrelated to hypnotism. And magically, these things that used to just like be such a big thing, oh my God, what if I'm rejected? You're like, I actually don't care. <laughs> like you would prefer not to be, but the pain is gone, mm. right? So if little Susie was mean to you and broke up with you in ninth grade and it broke your heart, that is still in there. <laughs> the pain you feel stays with your body. It's trying to keep you from feeling more pain. Bodies are dumb, right? They're also very good sources of information and they contain wisdom and knowledge, but they react really stupidly. So it's your job to go in there and prune your bad programming. And that's the path to personal development. Yeah. And it's almost like the awareness, right? You start with the awareness of, you know, I love how you broke it down to, you know, hardware and software and really talking about biology and then obviously software from a belief standpoint and being aware that really our, our, our unconscious belief system is really trying to keep us alive, you know, trying to reproduce and, you know, trying to eat or, you know, stay away from some, stay away from something that's going to eat us. If you really want to boil it down for something simple and then being aware of that and, you know, using mechanisms to, you know, really bring more consciousness to your awareness. I mean, is there anything else you'd say to that or any other hacks that you approach from a habitual standpoint that really support you in, in further growth here? Well, I mean, it's, it's tough to boil it down because I've just written you know, four sizable books on this, I know. <laughs> but um, I will tell you bulletproof coffee in the morning for breakfast in place of breakfast is a very real thing. It is, it's not going to change my life. If anyone listening to the show drinks or doesn't drink bulletproof coffee, um, it will change yours. People have lost a million pounds on the bulletproof diet. <laughs> We've done a couple hundred million cups of coffee and continue to grow. And it's not because I'm good at marketing, although I like to tell myself that I'm <laughs> all right there. It's because it works. So yeah. if you really want to have more electrons in your brain, the type of oil that goes in Bulletproof Coffee has more electrons than the normal carbs you eat for breakfast. And if you do it with coffee, which doubles ketone production in the morning, you blend it up with butter the way it says on my website, and you drink it, you'll actually have more energy in your brain to do what you want to do. And 15% of your thoughts on average are about food. The stupid voice that says, what's for lunch, what's for lunch, what's for lunch will shut up and you'll have all morning to get that time and energy back to do something. Mm. So there you go. That's like the easiest hack ever. And it took off first in Silicon Valley with entrepreneurs and developers, second on Wall Street with traders, third in Hollywood with uh, recording artists and fourth in professional sports. Hey guys, just a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back to the show. This episode of Elevate is brought to you by CF Capital, and you know how much I love real estate and how it can be a vehicle towards creating any outcome that you want in your life, which is really why we created CF Capital, a real estate investment firm that focuses on acquiring and operating multifamily assets that provide stable cash flow, capital appreciation, and a margin of safety 
for our investors, for our partners, and for the people that we serve. Our team leverages its expertise in acquisitions and management to provide investors like you with superior risk-adjusted returns while placing a premium on preserving capital. Our mission is to provide property investment and asset management solutions to help investors maximize their returns by investing in high-value multifamily communities. Our philosophy is that we can elevate communities together through this process. And I want to invite you to go check out cfcapllc.com because we have a free ebook that's called The Bottom Line, The 10 Ways to Increase Cash Flow in an Apartment Complex. And I want to tell you that this is a value-packed ebook. So I want to, want to invite you to go check that out right now at cfcapllc.com. I think you're going to get a ton of value just from reading this, whether you apply it to your own business or whether you educate yourself further on what it would look like if you invested with CF Capital. So go check that out at cfcapllc.com. Again, that's cfcapllc.com. And enjoy the rest of the show. Episode 140, Samantha Perkins, how to break free from addiction and use real estate as a vehicle to live your best life. Again, we hear about this, what you should be doing to take care of yourself, but no one's ever talking about how alcohol um, really impacts your mental and physical health. And so, yeah, I definitely um, was feeling anxious because I drank too much the night before. And as a result of that anxiety, I felt like I needed to take the edge off. And then I would feel anxious the next day because I drank too much the night before, you know, kind of going this nasty cycle. Um, and again, you know, like you said, I'm, I didn't get DUIs and I, you know, I didn't leave my kids at home alone and all these stories that we're used to hearing in our culture about this rock bottom. You know, I didn't have that from the outside, but on the inside, I felt awful. You know, it was just a realization like this, there's got to be more than this. And um, the alcohol was really numbing my ability to feel anything other than blah, you know? Mm. Yeah. And it's, it was, a, it was almost a coping mechanism to get away from that feeling of anxiety. And, you know, perhaps you, you started to recognize that and said, so then you said, okay, well, maybe there's something else. So talk to me about the journey from there, because obviously the first you know, pro first part of the process was the awareness. And then I'm sure the journey from there was not easy, right? Because there was probably some times where it's like, well, wait a minute, this habit has been so far ingrained. This is just who I am. This is what I do. And you've even, you know, described somewhat of the identity of your lifestyle. It's like, well, we go to, you know, we go to beer gardens, we go to the lake, we do these things. So could you talk to me about the process from there, from that realization? Yeah, sure. So I, um, yeah, alcohol was just what we did. You know, I say right. that it was it was our my hobby. It was how I, um, you know, it was there for me in times of goodness and in times of sadness. You know, when I was happy, I wanted to celebrate with a drink. When I was sad, I wanted something to, you know, help me not feel as sad. And so it was very much my identity. And you know, a lot of our friends drink and, you know, um, our parents. And I, you know, I talk about this in the book, you know, every single person, you know, from our, the guy we buy our cheese from to the, you know, our priest, you know, having a glass of wine and enjoying that. And so, yeah, that I thought about like, how could I ever stop? If I do, I'll just have to change everything about my life. I won't be able to go to these parties or these events. I won't be able to have dinner parties or host friends over without alcohol. And so I, um, was really worried about losing that in my identity. And so I really um, started reading some books and I found some people who had decided to kind of stop drinking in the same way um, that I had. And I read what they did and I started kind of doing the, embracing this versus um, trying to hide it. And I just kind of let people know 
you know, one day at a time. I wasn't trying to focus on, okay, I'm going to be sober for the rest of my life. And so, hey, everybody, see you later. I'm out. You know, I just kind of said, I'm not drinking right now. And I said that every minute of every day until it stuck. And I knew that it was going to happen for sure. And yeah, it wasn't easy. I just had to really focus more on what I thought about myself and what I wanted bigger than what, what it was in that moment. I had to push beyond, you know, having a drink at five o'clock for being able to achieve much bigger goals that I have for myself and for my life. So it was all about the small moments, right? The small decisions and sharing that with other people. I'm sure it wasn't like all in one moment and you were totally transformed, but it was all of those things that stacked up on top of each other, along with, I'm sure, some setbacks along the way, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, just little tiny, small steps. And I think people think that, yeah, you're going to go from one thing to the next big thing. And that's just not how it happens. And I couldn't really even allow myself to go beyond I'm not drinking right now. Because when I started to think about mm. my cousin's wedding coming up in July and what that was going to be like, you know, I would immediately say, I can't do this, you know? Mm. Um, and I've applied that same tactic to everything that we do now, including writing the book and, you know, getting through this pandemic with two children who don't go to school anymore, <laughs> you know, and um, very, very small steps, you know, created mm. this big success for me. That's actually really interesting. I, I really like that because I, I had recently a, a gentleman who's an ultra marathon runner and I asked him about how do you run a hundred miles? And he said, 50% of it is legs and 50% of it is your mind. And what he meant by that is like, once you get to 60 miles, 70 miles, 80, 90, hundred miles, he's like, it's about get to that stop sign. It's not about go another mile. It's about get to that stop sign, which is like three steps ahead of where you are. So it's almost like you applied that same thing. It's like, I'm just going to, this is where I'm at right now, this moment. I'm just going to try to win this moment. And then who knows what will happen next? Am I, am I kind of characterizing that in the correct yeah. way? Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I, we would go out. I remember very early on, right when I stopped drinking, we, we went to a birthday party. It was someone's 50th birthday and it was a big deal. And I was so nervous about it. And I was like, how can I get through this? You know, first of all, I was used to having the physical aspect of holding a drink in my hand all the time. So even just that yeah. part of it was like, so I stopped and got something to drink so that I would have something to hold, <laughs> a coffee. Um, and then I remember the first hour of the party, I was, I was just repeating in my head, you know, I'm just not drinking right now. I'm just not drinking right now and then you know I would check in with myself like oh I'm still having fun this is a good time like why did I think I needed to have alcohol in this moment and so I would really do a lot of inner dialogue to see is this something that I want to be doing is this fun for me is this a part of my life that I want to continue and if it is that's great and I can do it without alcohol and if it's not I probably need to just stop doing these types of things mm -hmm. episode 136 Dr. Mark Brackett cultivating emotional intelligence and so we all have these feelings and moods and emotions. And, you know, the theory of emotional intelligence asserts that, well, emotions have a function, right? They're, they're a smart system. They're not like many people think, you know, the aspects of your life that make you weak, but actually when used wisely, they make you smarter. And so the question is, you know, how do emotions influence all aspects of our lives? And, what I assert is that emotions are information, they're data, and that they inform our learning, our decision-making, the quality of our relationships, our physical and mental health, and our everyday performance. And so the question is, well, how is that happening? Well, I use my own case study. So I was a CND student 
right? And now I'm a professor at a place like Yale. So how is that possible, you know? And it's because I was so overwhelmed and stressed and anxious as a kid that my ability to learn was sacrificed. I was in fight or flight mode all the time. I was in survival mode. I don't care about the Roman oligarchy. I just want a friend. I want to get home safely. So like no one's protecting me. Why am I supposed to be present? How can I be present in my classroom when someone's tormenting me behind your back, teacher? And so what I think is important about what I just said is not my experience, which is my experience and everybody has their own experiences, but it makes you realize that, that it's not the child's or the individual's job only to develop these skills. It's about the environments that we're in, whether it be your home, whether it be your classroom, whether, you, whether it be your workforce. And so I see these skills as being um, embedded in systems that either are pro the development of these skills or not. And, you know, my example of being a poor student in middle school, um, knowing that I'm pretty smart, but couldn't function academically, but also realizing that like, like my teacher, didn't you see my facial expression? Like I was not looking happy. And teacher, didn't you see that kid who was like tormenting me behind your back, you know, in the back of the classroom? Like, how can we do anything about it? And so I, I, I hope you see what I'm getting at here, which is that like emotions, right? We know they are critical for our attentional capacity and learning. And yes, I have to have the ability to deal with my own feelings, but the environment that's surrounding me also has to really care about this to support the development, you know, of the child's emotion skills. Right. And so that applies to all decision-making. You know, we like to think, for example, you know, that we're rational creatures, you know, like I chose you know, this because my thought process did that, but feelings are always underneath our decisions. And one study that I did years ago, we randomly assigned teachers to be in different mood states. And then we asked them to grade a paper, the same paper, whether they were in a happy or a sad mood. And then we found there were full grade differences in the evaluation, but that when we asked them, do you believe that how you felt had any influence? 90% said, no way. Why would how I feel like I grade papers all the time? So what that tells us is that how we feel influences our judgments and decisions, but oftentimes outside of conscious awareness. No, it's so interesting. Go ahead. Yeah. So there's this endless stuff, you know, same thing with the, the role of emotions and relationships, you know, like you have a, a friendly facial expression, just so you know, right. You Thank smile, you. you, you seem to, you know, you make me feel welcome and warm. Um, well, I don't think it would make me feel warm, but you have a warm, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have a warm feeling, you know, that you create for the space. But I'm sure you've been with people who like, you know, when you, their facial expressions, their body language, their vocal tone are like, yikes. Mm. You know, like, I don't want to be around that. Yes. And so that's our emotion system giving us information, you know, approach, avoid. That's happening all the time in workplaces. Um, and by the way, I'll just skip a little bit into the future, which is we've done studies on this where we show that supervisors who are more skilled at dealing with their emotions have employees who are much happier, much more inspired, much less frustrated, less burnt out, 
et cetera. And so, you know, we can go on and on about the science of how emotions are inextricably linked to things like mental health um, and performance. I mean, you know, one of the things that surprised me as a professor here at Yale is that, you know, every student has, you know, high SAT scores. So they're all academically very gifted, but do they all reach the, their ultimate success in life? And the answer is no. And so, well, then I guess their academic abilities are not as predictive as we all thought they are. And so they may get you in, but they don't necessarily get you through life. Because the criterion for success, right, in this aspect of their life, getting into a college, is different than success with relationships, success with um, their jobs, uh, achieving their dreams. And what we find all the time is that people who don't have the skills of emotional intelligence, they can't deal with their feelings, like the disappointment, the frustration, the overwhelm, right? It's hard to be successful if you can't deal with your feelings. You know, if, I, if you're going through something really hard in life, a death of a loved one or a breakup or um, a project that just falls apart, like it's feelings that need to be dealt with, not necessarily thoughts. Yeah. And, and I'll talk about a, a formula that, you know, that I'm aware of. And you tell me, maybe you, maybe you'll rip this thing to shreds. But if you think about thoughts lead to feelings, which then lead to emotions, which then lead to motivations, which then lead to actions, which then lead to results. I don't know if you believe in that or agree with that formula, but it's something that I think about a lot. And what I think about is how can I, you know, visualize the result and feel the feeling ahead of the occurrence, perhaps, and utilize that and perhaps, you know, make some quantum leaps. I don't know if you agree with any of that, but, and I've got a couple other things I want to go into, but what, what are your thoughts about that whole formula there? First, I have to remember it, but, um, <laughs> I know it's a lot. No, it's thoughts, feelings, emotions, motivation, behavior, action. Yeah. Actions, results. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's fine. You know, the, um, it's not for me to judge, but the, you know, whether it always happens in an order, maybe not. Right. Um, you know, like sometimes you have a, a feeling that you don't even know where it came from. Um, sometimes, you know, oftentimes our emotions occur without thoughts. They're automatic responses to things that happen subconsciously in our minds. Right. Um, but I think the general idea, you know, is that, for our, for like our work is that all these things are so inextricably, inextricably linked, mm-hmm. you know, motivation is related to emotion, right? When you feel inspired, you're more motivated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, when you're bored, you're less motivated. You're not maybe, <laughs> you know, people think of boredom as a negative feeling, but like boredom can sometimes generate creativity. Episode 168, Dr. Jay Corsandi, biohacks healthy habits for optimal sleep, nutrition, and exercise. When you think about sleep, obviously, you know, we could get really in depth in terms of why we sleep and, you know, all these different things and what's the purpose of this and what does this do for our health and for our brain and for our learning. But could you just touch on REM sleep and deep sleep just slightly in terms of the importance of, of both? Ultimately, at the end of the day, it's about balance. You want to have a good amount of each. Uh, generally, you want to be about 50% light sleep, 
20 to 25% REM sleep and about 20% deep sleep. So having them in balance is, is important. Uh, the other thing that the way I explain it is I look at REM sleep more as a brain fixing process, maybe uh, as more of a brain optimization time and deep sleep more as a body optimization time. Because what happens is there's more processes in REM associated with, you know, memory consolidation, you know, brain detoxing that we talked about. And uh, with deep sleep, it's going to be more related to physical exertion. And, and I know when I have a hard workout or a yoga session or an infrared sauna and put stressors on the body, my deep sleep goes up subsequently. So uh, that's just my personal way to explain it. But, you know, it's about balance. Yeah, no, that's good. That's a really good rule of thumb. I appreciate that. So one thing I'd like to know is, is how does caffeine impact our REM, our deep sleep, our light sleep, just our sleep in general? How does caffeine impact this? So the general rule of thumb for caffeine is, you know, you want to quit by about 2 p.m. So here's the deal with caffeine. Caffeine has a half-life of, I believe, eight hours. Okay. So let's say you have a cup of coffee at 8 a.m. At 8 p.m., 50% of it well, no, that, that's what, so about 6 p.m., 50% of it's gone, but you still have 50% of it still in your body. So then it comes down to how efficient of a caffeine metabolizer are you? Some people will have one cup and be wired for days. Other people could have six cups and not feel a thing. So then it becomes very personal and individualized. Uh, and, the, and the way caffeine works is it occupies something called the adenosine receptor. And adenosine is, is what's called the, the, the sleep pressure uh, molecule or, or hormone. And it's it's basically what helps us get to sleep. But if caffeine's blocking those receptors in the brain, it's not going to let it go. So there, there's a there's a very interesting relationship between all, that, between all of that. I'm a fan of coffee. I have usually one cup a day in the morning and I'm good. But yeah, if I have some late in the day, I know I'm going to pay the price. Yeah, no, that's that's really resonated with me. And I'm probably too much of a coffee lover at some point. You know, it's like we've got to check in. Switch to decaf in the afternoon. That's what I'll do if I'm going to have one. That's a good idea. I like that. And so talk to me about alcohol as well. I mean, if you're going to have a glass of wine or you're going to have a cocktail, talk to me about the impact on sleep and and maybe some theories there or some strategies there. You know, it's always interesting because you watch movies and and people will talk about a nightcap, you know, or or pouring up a glass of whiskey or something like that. Alcohol is the number one sleep aid in the world Uh, for better or for worse. Right. I can tell you this. uh, Alcohol may help you fall asleep a little bit easier. It's a central nervous system depressant. Right. So it kind of makes you tired. The problem is, is that it will then interfere with what interfere with what's called your sleep staging. Uh, you'll you'll get less REM sleep on the back end, so you're going to pay the price at some point, and you may have to go to the bathroom because you had some liquid towards bedtime as well too. So, uh, generally, I would have stopped drinking probably about two to four hours before sleep at the minimum. Uh, I generally don't drink that much anymore just because I don't know maybe we've gotten older and it just doesn't <laughs> do much for me, but. Um, Occasionally, there are, you know, there's social events and celebrations and things like that. And, and you might want to have a glass of wine. Uh, but um, yeah, just be aware that, you know, it, it does have impact on, on the sleep. It's interesting because you go back to like the, you know, tracker. And when you realize like the impact that alcohol can have on your sleep, it's almost like, whoa, I can really feel this. And your debt, your next day, even if you have one or two drinks, it's like, man, it's a huge impact. I don't know if it's maybe the placebo effect of me understanding this, but does that resonate with you, Jay? 
Yeah, absolutely. And like you mentioned, you know, a lot of people I treat are high performers and, and CEOs and entrepreneurs, and they want to perform the next day. And, and what right. I say to people is your morning starts the night you go to sleep. Mm. So if you want to have a dialed in morning, you need to prep for it the day before and the night before. And if you're going to pound down a six pack, you're probably not going to perform as well the next day. Yeah. So let's talk about health and wellness in general, because I, I'm glad that we started with sleep because it almost feels like the foundation, as you mentioned, you know, your high performance of your day begins the night before. And I almost think that theory resonates just in general in terms of sleep being a foundation. So let's talk about health and wellness. When you think about nutrition, I almost feel like that's another foundational factor. So could you talk about some tips or strategies that you might suggest for folks around nutrition? Yeah. And it's interesting because I, I put three buckets into what we're talking about. One is going to be sleep. One is going to be uh, nutrition and, and diet. And the other is going to be movement or activity or phys mm. physical action. So uh, as far as nutrition goes, you know, I've tried just about every diet out there over the years um, from, you know, Atkins to, you know, uh, paleo to vegan to vegetarian to carnivore uh, to kosher to whole 30. I mean, there's so many out there. The, the problem is that people think it's one size fits all. Right. Uh, but in reality, it's, you know, there's so many factors involved. It's going to be your, your genetics. It's going to be your gut microbiome. You, everybody has specific bacteria that, that like certain things and don't like certain things in their stomach. So uh, then you got to look at testing and look at you know what's going on inside you to determine what's going to work best for you when you eat uh and then there's people that say you know like this carnivore diet not if you heard of that but they're saying well plants and vegetables and fruits and all that are inflammatory because they're rooted in the ground so they don't have a defense system like an animal that can either run away or attack you so they've built these things called lectins and oxalates and different compounds that disrupt your stomach and, and, and make you feel worse or inflamed. Therefore, you shouldn't eat them. You should only eat meat. So is, is any of them better or worse for you? The answer is it depends. Thank you for listening to Elevate. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. Most importantly, take this opportunity to elevate your results by taking immediate action on what you learned. For more, visit elevatepod.com.